Process, a podcast about creativity and making music. In a world where maybe no one is listening, outcomes and accolades for contemporary classical composers can seem far and few between. Therefore, composers must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one composer and their music. By understanding how and why they create can inform inspiring composers and help audiences better understand contemporary classical music. I am Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of new music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. In this episode of The Process, we talk with Robin Cox about his piece, Square Feet. He tells us how it was put together, how the performers perform it, and how audiences should interpret it. Square Feet was an early piece for the ensemble I led in Southern California for 13 years, starting in uh, the year 2000. And one of the original members of the group, a percussionist named Eric Lecron, I uh, quickly discovered, even though I brought him in, thinking it was mainly as a mallet guy, vibraphone, mm-hmm. marimba, I quickly discovered he was really something on a hand drum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, what I did not, what, what I, I think, smartly uh, understood early was that writing sp- specific rhythmically notated parts for hand drum generally is stifling in the worst of ways. So I wanted to create a structure that let him loose, uh, but was also juxtaposed against a through composed piece for the others of us. It originated just as, uh, as a quartet, so just as violoncello and marimba, along with the hand drums, which were fully improvised. It later grew to a couple more people in the group, um, and the recording you have actually has uh, an added bass clarinet in there, mm-hmm. in addition to the other notated parts. Uh, so I wanted to create something that gave enough space for him to uh, do his thing. Uh, but also provide something that gave more structure than simply a hand drum let loose. Uh, So the other parts are rather sparse, but they're also really rhythmically complicated. When you have a hand drum, they're usually assigned to keeping a strong groove-oriented beat. Or they're not, but everybody else is, say a Mm. bass player or something else. Nobody has that role in this piece. Mm. The idea, well, I don't know if this was uh, 
an originating idea, but soon I started to advise the players and I would advise the audience that what was going on was that those of us with the notated parts on stage had uh, very syncopated, offbeat, um, irregular rhythmic relationships in the music that in and of itself didn't find the regularity of a beat pattern. And Eric's job on hand drum was not to find that beat pattern for us, but to get us to make an actual mistake, was mm. to actually throw us off. Um, <laughs> so the challenge of the piece is kind of like going to the racetrack yeah. and waiting to see if, you know, waiting for a wreck uh, to occur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or if not waiting for it, knowing, well, I, I should rephrase that, not necessarily uh, waiting for a wreck, mm -hmm. but knowing there's a certain tension in the air sure. for the fact that you know at any moment, without warning, something could go awry and be really significant. What you're hearing in the notated parts, it's rather simple when you look at it on paper, but the top line is dot, 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 ba, da, ba, 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 ba. See, most of those notes that I just sang out of my mouth did not conform to the clicks I'm doing with my hand. Most are away from that. And then the bottom line is similarly not reinforcing the beat pattern as I'm clicking here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're counting along Dot, dot, like that, and then you have a hand drummer wreaking chaos over top of that, <laughs> where he's not giving us a sense of meter, beat pattern, and is doing these crazy things such as what's called uh, four against three, five against seven, uh, where he's doing very complex re in relationships, and the goal is to see who wins. Does he, Has he thrown somebody off into making a... Uh, a note mistake before the piece is over or not. And one way you can tell is usually it, there's at least two instruments on any one note event in the piece. Mm -hmm. So if you hear the violin literally just play by itself, you know that was in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's no, there's no click track. There's no other shenanigans with this. There's no conductor. Um, it's, it's just... Uh, and it's one of the more fun pieces I've ever been involved with that I wrote, uh, just in terms of uh, the possibilities of what could occur during the piece. And the hand drum part, well, let me say one other technical thing is, uh, the hand drum part is, not, is improvised, but Eric would generally be looking at what's called a reduced score in front of us, where he would see what we're doing. So he would know what we're doing, <laughs> but we would never know what he was going to do. Well, so you play the piece 10 times. So after the 10th time, do the other instrumentalists besides Eric now kind of know what Eric could do or might do? No, because he had enough in his repertoire. He had enough weapons available to him that he would, well, he would also try to trick us. He would fall into a groove and just where we needed him most to help reinforce a placement, he would be absent for us. 
So that's fantastic. So there might be even moments, kind of a musical rope-a-dope, where he would lead you yes. down a, maybe just a straight 4-4, four, four, and, and you'd feel home, and then all of a sudden... Exactly. Yeah. And the audience would, too. That's the thing. It's not just realized on stage, but the audience would sense that and feel like they had a... a uh, they were um, safely inside the piece. Sure. And then just like if you're at the speedway, all of a sudden around turn four, <laughs> someone hits the wall. talking about the process in general where you're thinking about the audience and I guess this is no different because now you're thinking about how is an audience going to react to this and, and it's not specifically how are they going to react in other words what are they going to be doing while they're listening but how can I involve them in the process yeah and and without getting too extra musical about it. Sure. I mean, you can get uh, so far down that path that they forget that it's a musical experience. I'd like to think sure. this threads the needle, where they're actually thinking about the tension on stage and tension within the music without it getting so far removed from the music, it becomes a theatrical event. Without inviting them on stage, right? Never. <laughs> well, you do do other things in your creative work, where uh, uh, specifically with uh, Hourglass, where... Uh, the audience in some way oh, participates. Yeah. Okay. So I'm being I'm being a little um, cute about it. I say never. Yeah. It's because if, if you just have not a, on Tuesday night. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a, if you have a concert work, the person that wants to come up may not be the one that you were hoping was going to come up and say. <laughs> uh, but yes, Hourglass is a community participation event, but it's also facilitated and there's sort of a container designed. Sure. For that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Another piece that you wanted us to listen to uh, was uh, faster than that. sort of fell into a fascination with rhythmic placement within a melodic idea or the primary idea. Sometimes I don't think you can talk about this in what would be normally thought of as uh, inside of a definition of melody, but still the, ryth the rhythmic location of a note within the primary idea. I think our history, at least within Western cultures, has been to be rather mundane with rhythmic relationships and the and the pitch relationships tend to be more varied and to be more where the surprise is or the the place the note that's not the one you thought was going to happen is more generally by the parameter of pitch than by the parameter of rhythm thing so uh, the you know just from the the opening gestures of of this uh, movement uh, are really specific in terms of the low and the high note and how long those each of those notes actually last 
so that very few notes actually occur on the beat until I want you to get a sense of it's a conclusion of a phrase. So I'm thinking in terms of consonants and dissonance, but not in terms of harmony and pitch, but consonants and dissonance in terms of uh, placement in relationship to your sense of the beat and the tempo. So it's not, so this is what I didn't write. Da 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 ba da 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 bump. Okay? What are da 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 ba ba da? Really slightly different, but I think there's a little bit more dissonance mid phrase there so that when you come to the note at the end that's on the beat, then it feels more like you've concluded something, just as you might conclude in pitch relationships at what musicians refer to as a cadence. It's a rhythmic cadence, then, in a way. Well, it's a rhythmic fray. I, I think yeah. of it in terms of creating and releasing tension by rhythm, as opposed to being not on the tonal center note, but by being other notes and then arriving at the tonal center, I'm arriving at the beat. So I think of often um, major minor scale systems and tonality is pretty directly analogous to how we can treat uh, time signatures, meters, being on the beat. Are you inside the box or are you outside the box? Are you on scale degree one or are you on scale degree seven? Are you on the beat or are you between beats with the note? Well, even with tonality, and when we think about the history of, of tonal music, there's that ooey-gooey era in music before tone rose and, and kind of this abstraction began where you could tell some composers are kind of drifting away from tonal centers. And there's this early 20th century music where all of a sudden feels like it's in C and then it starts to drift. What is the role then of, of pitch and tonality in your music? If the cadences and the phrases are being organized by rhythm uh, or defined by rhythm, what role does pitch play? Well, it does, it, it, it does vary piece by piece. In this, sure. in this particular piece, it's a bit more by rhythm than by pitch. The pitch rela relationships are pretty restricted in terms of the uh, different ones involved. Uh, in my work, there's a bit more equanimity between rhythm and pitch in terms of concern and the working out and what what am I trying to accomplish for to the degree that I'm conscious of it at all. I tend to be pretty conscious about where the note is as much as is it, its height. You know, in terms of the, you know the, the rhythmic relationship as much as as as, as the pitch. When I'm thinking in pitch, it's it's often not say I have a scale system device. Sure. I certainly don't go as far as to have sort of a pre-compositional process where I lay out these are the four, six, eight, whatever sure. number of pitches I'm going to to work with. Okay. I just the hair stands up on the back of my neck whenever I get that uh, methodical about it. Sure. Um, uh, but what I'll find is as I'm working into a piece, certain pitches keep coming up, and certain ones I. I keep avoiding, and often I'm looking for those, sort of to put it in traditional terms, leading tone relationships, where I feel like I'm either on the mark of something that has some centering aspect to it, or I'm one step away, above or below. Um, or that certain pitches um, s start having a sense of centering, or 
resolution or importance by the fact that how often I'm on them. I just simply am there, regardless of the other pitches that are involved. It's just I keep hitting the pitch of A, or it's of certain durations, and that gives a certain sort of significance to it in and of itself. Yeah, how much real estate is provided on the, on the page. Or, yeah, if or you just keep hitting thing. a certain note, I don't care what other notes yeah. are, it becomes an important note. And the accent and when you arrive at it, yeah. Well, that's yeah. true too. Yeah. I don't I don't think yeah. you can, I don't think for my work, you can totally divorce pitch and rhythmic relationships. Sure. I think you can, um, if you put a pitch on the beat, um, then suddenly it feels more centering. If that same pitch is rhythmically displaced, as a matter of pitch, it may not have the same kind of impact. So this seems to be a very challenging concept then for a performer, the idea that they're rhythmically going to be extremely challenged. In other words, the piece is going to force them to sometimes not be on the beat, not have a strong sense of, of arriving on one. Maybe the accent happens on the you know, third beat or the end of three. When you're creating this music, do you ever say to yourself, well, I don't know. I don't know if a performer is going to be able to hack it or, or this type of performer, if you're writing for a specific instrument, uh, this is going to be too challenging. Or are you always writing for yourself? Well, even if I am literally writing for myself, I'm trying not to think about that. And I know that when I do really inane things like write open f- fifth strings <laughs> sure. like 10 minutes into the piece, which... Sure. Yeah. Um, as a violinist, you're you don't want to stop. Yeah, saying double stop. You don't want to play for ten minutes and then hope your your instrument is perfectly still in tune after ten. And the good way you find that out is play two of the um, strings together that um, you don't have a finger down to adjust on the fly. Sure. And so I, I'm notorious for doing that to myself. So yeah, it's the, almost like a bar chord on a guitar or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. you know I find myself writing things that are problematic that way. So but the upside is it it make it does make me feel okay good. I wasn't thinking too hard about keeping it easy on myself. Um, I don't know. I think I look for ways to accommodate people to be able to play the ideas effectively as opposed to mess with the idea itself. And that leads into why I, especially with my ensemble in LA, we, we actually embraced using click tracks quite a bit uh, so that the performers would hear a tempo, much like a metronome, um, by in-ear monitoring, and the audience would be completely unaware of this in terms of what they're hearing, but it it it, do, it would facilitate accuracy with much less rehearsal uh, and much more like high likelihood of precision without having to water down the idea or let it, that infect my uh, creative decision-making. So in, other, in summary, so I, I just write what I write, and then after the fact, generally, I try to figure out how to make it uh, doable. Um, as opposed to letting that thought come into my head too much while I'm in the process of putting things to paper. Do you ever write something and say, that's beautiful, but I'll never be able to get somebody to perform that? 
at that point, I'm thinking, what other alternate mediums, what other instruments, what can I do to make this happen? So I, I try like heck to go down that path before I actually start altering pitches or, or, or rhythmic relationships. Join us next episode when we talk with Robin Cox about the creative cogitations. 